Good morning. I just wanted to clarify uh, because of inattention to my typing skills, apparently, I labeled the last chapter in Candy, Candace Candy Cane PI Case Files to Catch a Clown as chapter 13, and it was actually chapter 12. Um, this begins chapter 13. One year earlier, another young woman stepped off of a Greyhound bus on the outskirts of the town known for its psychic population and took up with the first man she met who looked like he had a steady job. Cherry Pitts was 24 years old, Ohio born and bred. Not unlike Candy, she came from a middle-class background and had rural experience. But Cherry didn't grow up on a farm. Rather, she'd married into one. And for a small town girl who'd never planted a seed in her life, the change from residential living to remote isolation as the farmer, as the wife of a farmer, 10 years her senior, came as a culture shock She'd participated in the planting, cultivation, harvesting, canning, pickling, selling, and county fair entries for a few years after her marriage. At the tender age of 18, until one day, shortly before her 21st birthday, she began to socialize with some young people she'd met in a local park while out on a rare adventure to check out an arts and crafts show. To make a long story short, the young woman ultimately left Ohio and her husband to travel cross-country with her newfound group of friends. They had camped next to a lake near Lawrence, Kansas, with the experiencing leaving Cherry to wonder why Dorothy would have ever wanted to leave there. She lost her wedding ring in a truck stop in Cheyenne, Wyoming, when she washed her hands one week into the trip, having lost 10 pounds from living on one rice meal a day. She'd walked 24 hours to the desert, shivering under a heavy military-issue peacoat at night and sweating under the strain of carrying it through the day after the car they'd been driving died somewhere outside of Hollywood, California, when a gaggle of seemingly good Samaritans transported them all to a roomy faux log cabin in Topanga Canyon and offered to let them stay indefinitely, Cherry knew something wasn't kosher and found out her intuition was right when she and the other female in the group were told they would be working, cooking, cleaning, and otherwise be subservient to the men, while the men in the group were told they needed to convert to homosexuality if they intended to stay and catch the next spaceship leaving Earth and due to arrive around 2029. A few years too long for Cherry to wait, so while most of her friends elected to stay, Cherry, 
who had refused the offer, was escorted out onto the deserted road just a little past midnight and left to fend for herself as a freezing sleet whipped down around her. Regardless, she had managed to survive and shortly thereafter found most of her friends knocking on the door of the little two-room shack she'd leased from her new employer, a kindly old gentleman who owned a quaint local organic market. He had picked Cherry up on the side of that dark and freezing road after she had walked for an hour and had more than one revelation concerning her short life. Eventually, her employer and surrogate father, Charlie, had convinced her to return to her husband, and so she had eaten crow and went back to the farm for another couple of years. But by then, the damage had been done, and after she had a miscarriage, the union didn't have a chance in Hades of surviving. One cool spring morning, Sherry found herself being packed into an old rambler with a single suitcase of clothes and $250 in her pocket. She ditched the car in exchange for a bus ticket to Florida and had made it as far as Casadega when her fare ran out, so she'd opted to stick around and try her luck. The parallels between the two young women's lives, however, were separated by leaps and bounds. Though they shared many things in common at first glance, they actually lived on extreme opposites of the same spectrum. In fact, Cherry's life dwelt so much on the negative end that it's depressing to even write about it, let alone to read, absorb, and continue reading. And so it's enough to say her life continued in the same vein. Her paramour, a disavowed former Hell's Archangel, who called himself, of course, Dog, D-A-W-G, did indeed have a job that he worked at when the mood struck him or he needed to buy beer. And Cherry's overtime shifts at the convenience store didn't stretch past paying the rent on the bungalow on Mango and the meager groceries she tried to make last from paycheck to paycheck. She came home night after night to tiptoe over snortling drunks and pyramids of beer cans, hoping Dog would be passed out. Sometimes she got lucky, but most nights he was awake and rowdy and ready to heap on the abuse. When she discovered she was pregnant, he had become enraged. So after her abortion at the hands of an unlicensed doctor in Orlando who had emigrated from some foreign country and said he was forced to work as a housekeeper until his papers came through, Cherry began to exercise her options, which were few and far between. Still, she'd managed to meet and begin a clandestine relationship with another local man in the month before she met her untimely demise. And unfortunately, Dog had gotten wind of this. And the day after her body was discovered, the neighbors were telling Foster Childs 
they'd heard a very loud argument coming from the house at 1295 Mango, along with the obnoxious rumbling of a posse of motorcycles barreling away from the dwelling around midnight. But as this was nothing unusual, no one had called the police. The occupants of the home had been warned numerous times about their disturbance of the peace and had in fact been delivered an eviction notice that very day. As a matter of fact, when Candy was driving down the street and being eyed by Cherry, who thought perhaps Candy was involved somehow with them being kicked out of the house. Nevertheless, apparently Cherry had an escape plan already in motion and didn't expect to be living <laughs> yep, living with the drunken dog much longer anyway, according to a co-worker in whom she had confided. Lolita was a sweet girl, but she had no teeth, four children to feed, and an elderly mother she cared for, so she hadn't been able to offer Cherry th anything except a sympathetic ear. It was Lolita who told Foster who Cherry had taken up with, and also where it was most likely to find the delinquent dog.